Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. If you have any feedback on the show or questions for previous guests, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. Stay tuned after the interview to find out about the Lawfare Drone Smackdown. And then in our regular What's Happening in Congress segment, learn why John Hudak says Congress's and President Obama's decision-making on the issue of using military force against ISIS represents politics at its absolute worst. My guest today is a veteran public servant who worked in the U.S. State Department, on the National Security Council, and most recently was Deputy U.S. Trade Representative. She is also the founder of an internet governance and telecommunications policy consulting firm and a visiting fellow in the Global Economy and Development Program here at Brookings. Ambassador Miriam Sapiro, welcome to the show. Thank you, Fred. I'm delighted to be here. From 2009 to 2014, you were the Deputy U.S. Trade Representative and acting trade rep for a short period of time. What is that job? What is the U.S. Trade Representative? The U.S. Trade Representative is the person appointed by the president to develop, coordinate, and implement U.S. trade policy, known as the USTR or the United States Trade Representative. He or she is a member of the president's cabinet. And is that a, uh, a Senate-confirmed position? Uh, yes, it is. That's correct. Most deputy cabinet jobs are, for better or worse, that means that a nomination can get hung up on various political issues. In my case, it did take a few extra months to get confirmed because one senator was angry at Canada over an anti-smoking measure that he believed hurt tobacco growers in his state, and he wanted the president to do something about that. So Canada was proposing the anti-smoking measure. Uh, Canada had enacted an anti-smoking measure that had upset one senator. And as you know, uh, a concern by any one of 100 senators is enough to hold up a nomination for a period of time. Fortunately, it was worked out and I was confirmed. Why is there such an office anyway when I think the Constitution provides that the Senate ratifies treaties? And trade is a, a treaty-level exercise, is it not? Well, it's really two questions, Fred. Um, the first one is, why is there an office that's separate from other government agencies that also play a role like the State Department or the Commerce Department. The reason is that starting in the early 1960s, President Kennedy and the Congress felt that it would be better to have independent advice, that is, independent of purely foreign policy considerations and also independent of purely commercial reasons to decide, again, what will be U.S. trade policy and then uh, how exactly it will be implemented. The other question is, what is the role of the Senate in this process? You're absolutely right that a treaty needs two-thirds of the Senate to pass. But trade agreements have been done differently. They've been done as congressional executive agreements, which means that they require a majority of each House, both the Senate and the House of Representatives, in order to pass. Okay. Well, I did not know that. That is interesting. Uh, and, and does the position come with the rank of ambassador, or is that a, a different thing? It does come with the rank of ambassador and while in the job, uh, the title of deputy U.S. trade representative. Your online bio says that when you worked in the State Department, so I'm going to go back a few years here, uh, you helped to negotiate the 1995 Dayton peace accords that ended the war in Bosnia. I was reflecting also on a, on a guest I had on the podcast a year ago who was also an ambassador, Stephen Pfeiffer. He was U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and he helped negotiate the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, which took the nuclear weapons out of 
Ukraine and has come back to the fore now. Uh, but thinking about the Dayton Peace Accords, I'm just curious, what was it like to be part of that momentous event? It was an exciting process with an ultimately rewarding outcome in that we were able to get the three warring parties to agree on a peace agreement, including a new constitution in which they would share power. Bosnia today still has problems, particularly with governance, but what's important is that our efforts nearly 20 years ago did succeed in stopping the bloodshed and the genocide. Okay, well, let's uh, let's move on to trade, uh, which is your current focus of research here at Brookings. And of course, you were the U deputy U.S. trade representative. Your recent paper is titled very simply, Why Trade Matters. In a nutshell, why does trade matter? Well, if I, if I had to summarize that question in just a few sentences, I would highlight two main reasons. The first one is that 95% of the world's consumers live outside our borders. So if the United States wants to expand economic growth and opportunity and create more jobs, we have to be able to sell more overseas. Many people are not aware that it's much easier to say you're going to do that than actually do it. Why is that? Well, countries often use high tariffs, um, sometimes also arcane regulatory rules or other mechanisms to keep U.S. products and U.S. services out of that market or to let them in but make them uh, much more expensive or to limit them in some fashion. Trade agreements are how the United States tears down those barriers. The other key reason why trade matters is that other countries are moving towards establishing new agreements with new partners. So if we don't negotiate new agreements, high standard agreements, what we call 21st century cutting edge agreements, then our companies and our workers will be disadvantaged with respect to their competition. So we have a choice. Either we write the rules of the road or others will step in and they won't necessarily do it the way we would like to see it happen and it won't work to the benefit of our economy. Let me quote uh, from the paper, uh, which I'll supply in the show notes. It's also on our website, Why Trade Matters. You wrote, strengthening America's economic security by cementing its economic alliances is not simply an option, but an imperative. And for the reasons you cited, uh, it's clear that it's an imperative. Some of the top line numbers on trade, you said 95% of the world's consumers are outside our borders. One-third of U.S. economic growth over the last five years came from increased exports. U.S. export sector was $2.3 trillion last year. We have 20 free trade agreement partners. In excluding oil, we have a trade surplus of $15 billion. Um, just looking at that trade surplus number, why does that kind of number matter? We used to hear about trade imbalances and trade deficits, but now we have a trade surplus in both goods excluding oil and services. Why is that important? Well, uh, we, we've we always uh, enjoyed a surplus with respect to services. We have a very strong services-based economy, and um, we've been able to uh, compete very effectively. Uh, so that's not a surprise. Most people are surprised to realize that we actually uh, have a goods uh, surplus much smaller, but nonetheless, when you take out oil. But I think the statistics you've highlighted are very important to remember because last year we actually hit a record as we had in previous years. So $2.3 represents uh, the highest level that we've ever reached. 
Uh, we've also had some very good numbers this year. We'll have to see where we are come December. But notwithstanding the economic headwinds that we've been facing, Europe is facing, uh, Asia and many other regions as well, we've still been able to have a very strong record so far. I'll cite one other data point from your paper. Every increase of $1 billion in exports is estimated to support 6,000 jobs, 6,000 American jobs. That's perhaps, Fred, the most important statistic because, again, it goes back to my point that if we want to grow our economy and create more jobs for more Americans, it's very important that we uh, develop new trade agreements that can tear down the barriers that are currently uh, inhibiting our ability to reach our full export potential. I'd also point out that uh, jobs in the export-related sectors tend to pay more than other jobs, about 10 to 18 percent more. Um, so not only do our exports support jobs, but they also support better-paying jobs. You know, our, uh, our Metropolitan Policy Program colleagues have done some research on this topic. So I'll, again, commend listeners to go on our website and look for uh, export jobs from our Metro program. Let's play the acronym game. This, this field is full of acronyms. Among others, there's uh, AGOA, APEC, ASEAN, COMESA, ECOWAS, GAFTA and NAFTA, SACU, and WIMU. These are all acronyms for existing trade agreements. Uh, you explain them all in an appendix of your paper, uh, so I won't go into them, but let's talk about two of them in particular that are in the news a lot, and those are TPP and TTIP. What are these? Uh, well, it certainly sounds like you're speaking a foreign language. Um, don't forget TPA for Trade Promotion Authority, which is uh, legislation that the administration is seeking in order to give it the ability to conclude agreements and see them pass Congress more quickly. Also, there's TISA, the Trade and Services Agreement, which is an important initiative, again, based on our comparative advantage in the services sector to embrace new plurilateral, potentially multilateral commitments in Geneva that would help us expand this sector. Now, let me say, before I joined USTR, uh, based, on, <laughs> based on, correct, we've explained that one, um, based on, on uh, a dozen years at the State Department and uh, at the National Security Council, I was pretty sure that DOD, the Department of Defense, had more acronyms than any other U.S. government agency. Clearly, I was wrong. Some of the acronyms uh, that you've mentioned are actual trade agreements. Others, like the TPP, stands for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the TTIP, which stands for the Transatlantic partnership that we are now negotiating are trade agreements in the works. Others are other initiatives um, that other countries or other regions are involved with, and others uh, reflect legislation, such as AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, um, is current U.S. legislation that gives important trade preferences to sub-Sahara Africa that enables it to facilitate trade with the United States. So a lot of acronyms uh, represent a lot of different kinds of, of efforts. But back to your question as to what is TPP, what is TTIP, and forgive me for using the acronyms, but it's so much more efficient than spelling out Trans-Pacific Partnership, Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership uh, every time we speak. Um, these are two cutting-edge negotiations that are now underway. Uh, the TPP is with some of the fastest-growing economies in the Asia-Pacific region and has been going on for about three years. 
So hopefully, potentially, it's close to the wrap-up phase. And in contrast, the TTIP started last year, um, already had six rounds of negotiations, will hold its seventh. So it's on a, a quick track, I would say, in terms of the administration wanting to move that agreement along as well. But it has, uh, I would say, at least another year to go until it will be able to address all of the issues and hopefully be in a position to think about the end game. When you say uh, negotiation, uh, just <clears throat> a question that occurred to me, when you think about negotiation, are you talking literally there are people sitting in a room, maybe it's a big round table, and you, our Ambassador Sapiro, are sitting in the room with um, Europeans or maybe your Asian counterparts, and you've got briefing books? I mean, what is what is going on there? What is a negotiation? Well, a negotiation is, just as you described, the parties. And in the case of uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, there are 12 countries, including the United States, uh, that are sitting around the table, a large table, obviously. With Europe, it's a little different because the U.S. and the EU are in a bilateral negotiation. So there are two parties in that sense. But the European Union the EU represents 28 member states. They don't typically negotiate trade agreements. They have delegated that authority to Brussels, to the European Commission, to do on their behalf. But uh, the Commission has a, a lot of, let's say, departments. And so the, the table might not be quite as big as a TPP table, but it's still a significant size. And if you take a look at our trade agreements, um, you'll see just how complex they are. And I would say increasing complexity over the years. So, if, for example, you look at the three most recent trade agreements that we uh, concluded with Panama, with Colombia, with Korea, that passed Congress in 2011, you'll get a sense of just how many issues are covered. Um, 20 or more chapters, each chapter an immensely complicated issue like investment, for example, or uh, labor obligations, or environmental protections, or aspects of market access. So each of these issues has its own negotiating team. Um, and they will work together, not just in the room, but also um, before they meet, after they meet, by email, by teleconference, to again, work through the issues, try to identify as much common ground as possible, and where the differences think of potential approaches that can help resolve them. Okay. Um, I'm going to play a piece of tape that uh, is from Ambassador Susan Rice, the current National Security Advisor to the President, and also a former Brookings Senior Fellow. She spoke at an event here at Brookings recently about Southeast Asia. And she actually, in part of the speech, spoke to this issue of trade. Southeast Asia and its markets are critical to American prosperity. Together, ASEAN comprises the seventh largest economy in the world, and the fourth largest trading partner for the United States. ASEAN nations draw more US investment than any single country in Asia. And with some of the fastest growing economies in the world, ASEAN will only become more important to our economic future. That's why we are committed to completing the Trans-Pacific Partnership. One third of TPP participants are from ASEAN, including members like Singapore, Vietnam, and Malaysia, for whom the high standard agreement means making serious new commitments. 
So what does she mean by high standard agreement? And you, you used that term earlier. Mm -hmm. And what are these serious new commitments? As I mentioned, Fred, trade agreements that the U.S. is negotiating tend to build on previous agreements. So uh, each one takes uh, the last one as a starting point, and the negotiators think, well, what can we do here that will, again, embrace open markets, improve market access uh, by bo reducing both the tariff barriers and also the non-tariff barriers, and also addressing, uh, addressing emerging issues? Um, that we didn't have perhaps five, ten, or more years ago, but we we have now to address. So, what Ambassador Rice is referring to is that the Trans-Pacific Partnership is what we call a 21st century high standard agreement, um, and it includes, as she mentioned, a number of ASEAN partners, um, also Brunei, in addition to Malaysia, Vietnam, and Singapore. So, in that agreement, the U.S. government is seeking the elimination of tariffs across the board, the reduction of the non-tariff barriers that are harder to see. Um, they could be rules, they could be regulations, they could be uh, licensing requirements, they could be a number of, of measures that uh, discriminate against uh, companies, uh, either goods or services from the United States, as well as from other countries, um, but that don't, don't treat uh, imports on a, a level playing field. So so it also will include, for example, ensuring strong labor protections, strong environmental protections, um, strong uh, enforcement of intellectual property rules, uh, addressing concerns posed by state-owned enterprises. It's a particular concern in, uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. So all of those at the end of the day, we'll compromise a high standard agreement that will build on, but take to a new level, the kinds of commitments and obligations that the U.S. and previous trading partners have embraced. So the U.S. and, and its trading partners in these agreements would be asking countries like Vietnam or Malaysia to themselves change their labor and environmental practices, uh, to change their intellectual property laws. Embracing high standards on labor, environment, IP, and other issues is going to be a critical part of this trade negotiation and, I think, essential to an effective outcome. Do they ever ask us to, uh, to amend our laws or practices? Uh, it can happen. Um, our rules and regulations are already pretty high standard now, so I would say that that's rare. So what's a concrete example of how implementation of these agreements could help or does help or would help American businesses and American consumers? Uh, well, let me give you an example that draws from one of the three most recent trade agreements that I mentioned earlier. Uh, the U.S.-Panama Free Trade Agreement entered into force in 2012. Panama, as you may know, is one of the fastest growing economies in Latin America and also has an incredibly strategic role uh, with the Panama Canal as a major shipping route for the United States. When that FTA entered into force, immediately 87% of tariffs on U.S. exports of consumer and industrial products to Panama became duty-free with an obligation Panama took on to reduce the remaining tariffs to zero by 2022, in other words, 10 years later. So products like information technology equipment, aircraft and parts, 
medical and scientific equipment, to name just a few categories, were immediately duty-free and thereby saving U.S. companies uh, significant revenue and also making it much easier by streamlining the regulatory processes for them to export into Panama and to use Panama as a hub for other destinations in Central America and also Latin America. And that's that's good news. Uh, but you hear arguments from some quarters against free trade. What are some of those arguments? What are some of those arguments that, that bother you as, as, a, as an official in trade policy? And how do you deal with those? Well, Fred, I, I think there's, unfortunately, um, a significant amount of misinformation out there on a number of issues uh, regarding both current negotiations, TPP and TTIP. I, I sense the administration and also their trading partners uh, in Asia and in Europe are uh, stepping up and pushing back more forcefully and making sure that the public has correct information. One worry that I do have is about potential job loss. Uh, and that's an issue that I think is often misunderstood, but obviously a very serious concern. So let me elaborate on that. Trade agreements can lead to the elimination of some jobs, but economists call this job displacement because more jobs are created overall than are reduced. And in order to stem job loss, uh, it's really important for countries to enact job training programs, such as the United States does with respect to, it's another acronym, sorry, uh, trade adjustment assistance known as TAA. So it's important on this issue to look at all of the data, which also shows that there's no clear relationship between a new trade agreement and job reduction. And that's because advances in technology and globalization can and do adversely affect the job market in a particular country. But it usually leads to reductions in some sectors, but gains, sometimes significant gains in other sectors. In other words, there's no net job loss. There's actually net job gain. Let me give you a more specific example because this is a very important point. And as I said, there's, there's some misinformation out there. The Peterson Institute did a study that uh, found about 4 million Americans become jobless every year. But at the same time, the overall number of jobs is rising. So NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement that the United States has with Mexico and Canada, uh, is often uh, mischaracterized an example of job loss when, in fact, their study shows that 7 million U.S. jobs were added during the seven years after the agreement entered into force, and that U.S. unemployment during that time actually dropped from about 7% to 4%. Now, that's small comfort to those individuals whose jobs did disappear because of globalization and technology. And again, that means that the U.S. and others need to work harder to make sure that there are real job retraining opportunities available and hopefully new jobs. Right. And then in the case of just Panama, uh, if they're lowering their tariffs on all of those um, goods and services... I mean, that obviously is helping many sectors in the U.S. economy. Um, that's very interesting. And I will put that um, Peterson Institute paper in the show notes on the website as well. 
Um, you talked about in the paper the, quote, spillover effects of successful agreements. What are spillover effects? An agreement like TPP or TTIP clearly benefits the U.S. economy and the other parties to that agreement by reducing the tariff barriers and the non-tariff barriers. But, Fred, it can also help third countries that are not signatory to the agreement by making it easier for them to trade with the United States, with Europe, with the Asia-Pacific region. And I say that because when these agreements help reduce the non-tariff barriers and address regulatory uh, issues and help streamline uh, border crossing procedures and a whole host of other rules that that can affect trade. Um, or to give you another example, when these agreements succeed in getting the parties to them to work more closely at developing common standards or deciding that they may have slightly similar standards, but they're substantially equivalent or they're comparable, that helps third countries that aren't party to any of these agreements. And that's because if you're manufacturing uh, automobile parts in Johannesburg, South Africa, or Jakarta, Indonesia, you no longer have to have two assembly lines making parts for the U.S. and parts for Europe. But theoretically, if the agreement is successful, um, it will enable you to have one assembly line. These benefits also accrue to U.S. manufacturers building cars in Europe and European manufacturers building cars in the United States. I call that a win-win-win, not only for the parties directly involved, but also for third countries that can benefit. And that's why I call that spillover effects in the paper. A win-win-win. I like that. And, and that makes sense. Um, so looking at the current situation on a President Obama's trade agenda for the remainder of his term, Congress is out now until the midterm elections in November, leaving only one year before the start of the 2016 presidential election cycle, which, is, as we all know, has actually started already. What do you think the administration and Congress can accomplish on trade in the remaining time? Well, I agree with you. It's going to start a, a lot sooner than one year out. Uh, I imagine it will. the presidential election will uh, get a lot more active in the first part of next year. So I think for trade, that means that the first quarter of 2015 is going to be very important. It's going to be the time to get Trade Promotion Authority done, if it's not done sooner. And assuming TPP is indeed wrapped up in the next few months, also an opportunity for Congress to pass TPP. All right. So bottom line, what are the implications of more trade for the United States? It comes down to jobs. Remember that saying, it's the economy stupid from the first Clinton campaign? Well, I think the same is true about jobs. It may not be the nicest way to put it, perhaps, but it gets the point across. Americans need more and better jobs. And I explained earlier why exports have an important role to play in helping the U.S. fully recover from the financial crisis, stimulating more growth, thereby creating more jobs, more demand for exports, easier ability to export through these trade agreements means we can sustain and create more jobs. And this is true, by the way, not just for the United States, but for our trading partners. Um, it will be easier for them to trade with us, and it will help them create more jobs and help them, uh, whether it's in Europe or countries like Japan, in Asia, um, other trading partners, help them recover more quickly. 
And bottom line, question number two, what are trade's implications for the U.S. and its trading partners in the context of global affairs, so beyond the direct effect of creating more jobs? Mm -hmm. Well, we've talked about the economic rationale for why trade matters, but there's also a really important strategic dimension. And following through and concluding these negotiations, seeing Congress give the administration the authority it needs to conclude and to then successfully build support in Congress for, for passage is important because, first of all, it helps us cement these economic alliances. The U.S. and Europe today have the largest economic relationship of any two partners in the world. About $2.7 billion in goods and services flow each day. Um, overall, we have trillions of dollars invested in our two economies. And this relationship supports already about 13 million jobs on both sides of the Atlantic. But there's no trade agreement. People are often surprised to realize we do all that without a trade agreement. So again, not only is it important to look at the economic potential here, but also to cement our economic alliance. The same goes uh, with respect to the Asia-Pacific region. As you know, the administration has focused a great deal on Asia, not to the exclusion of other regions, but because it's vitally important. And again, cementing our economic alliance with these fast-growing economies is really vital to our successful economic future. I think they're also important because they are not static agreements, but they can be expanded to embrace new partners. We've already seen the TPP, even though it's still under negotiation, expand several times, most recently to embrace Mexico, Canada, and Japan. My sense is it will expand further once it's concluded. There are a number of other countries that appear interested in joining, such as Korea and the Philippines. TTIP right now, as I mentioned, is between the U.S. and Europe. But at some point, I suspect there will be uh, a process put in place so that other countries that are interested would have an opportunity to indicate that interest. In all cases, prospective partners will have to demonstrate that they can meet the very high standards, the 21st century obligations that we talked about. Um, but if they can do that, then then it's likely that they would be welcomed. So I think broadening these economic partnerships, uh, again, spreading prosperity and um, fueling broader economic growth that's also inclusive will be very important. And the last reason I would suggest for why it's important to get these agreements done is the United States should be able to finish what it set out to do. And it comes back to an earlier point that I made. If the U.S., for whatever reason, is unable or unwilling to see these agreements through to conclusion, and I think at this point the administration has made clear its interest in doing that, but the extent of congressional support is still an open question. So hopefully after the election, the midterm election, um, Congress will be able to move ahead because it's really important to demonstrate leadership on these issues. And if the U.S. doesn't, then others will step in well, if, if I could uh, take the liberty to amend the title of your paper, Why Trade Matters, I would add, Trade Clearly Matters. Mm -hmm. Thanks for your time today, Miriam. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Fred. To learn more about uh, Ambassador Miriam Sapiro and her research, visit brookings.edu slash global and search our website for Why Trade Matters. Again, if you have any questions for Ambassador Sapiro or any guests of the podcast, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. Will drones be coming to a patch of sky near you? 
Amazon has been seeking an exemption from the Federal Aviation Administration's ban on commercial drones, while the agency has just announced it will allow filmmakers to operate drones on movie sets. In a recent event on civilian robotics, moderator Benjamin Wittes, a senior fellow and editor-in-chief of Lawfare, described the background of an experiment he and colleagues did with off-the-shelf drones. So uh, I had my first encounter with um, regulatory aspects of civilian robotics uh, a couple years ago when I was uh, admittedly impulsively organizing a um, very amateur drone fight um, in connection with a, a website that Wells and I run called Lawfare. And Lawfare uh, is devoted to national security law, and um, we were interested in sort of the question of uh, proliferation of technologies down to the level of individuals and what people could do with them. And so we thought it would be fun to buy off-the-shelf drones and uh, see if we could modify them and dogfight them and see what would happen if a bunch of totally untrained people who had no background in robotics tried to have a drone war. Uh, it was great fun, and you can read all about it on Lawfare, but one of the things that happened while we were preparing for this event is that a gentleman, I'm not making this up, um, um, decided that it would be an appropriate thing to do from Adams Morgan to take a drone onto his rooftop and fly it directly toward the White House. Um, and the gentleman in question, um, as will happen every now and then, lost control of the drone in question, um, and it crashed. And so he did what any good citizen would do in this situation, which is he hung up lost drone photos all over his neighborhood. Um, and I posted one of them on Lawfare, because one of actually one of the people who works in GS found one on the way to, to, to work. Um, and so I posted it up on Lawfare, and um, he actually found his drone, which was heartwarming. Um, and he got a call from the Federal Aviation Administration saying, you know, actually you're not allowed to fly a drone in Washington because it's part of the flight restricted, there's a flight restricted zone around the DC area and you're not allowed to do that. And we were about to do the Lawfare drone smackdown and we thought, well, this couldn't possibly apply to us because we're um, flying little things that are you know, about yay big and that they have a you know, 150 meter radius. Uh, you know, these couldn't possibly apply to us. But we took a look at the rule in question, and it kind of by its terms, if read literally, seemed to. So I posted a notice on Lawfare, a memo to the FAA, saying here's what, exactly what we're planning to do. Here's exactly where we're planning to do it. If you've got a problem with this, you'd better let us know. Rather to my surprise, I got a call a few days later from the FAA that said they regarded the Lawfare drone smackdown as illegal. So I asked them, well, what if we used like, you know, like model helicopters, you know, that are this big, that fly, you know, this high? And the answer was, well, that would be illegal too. Um, and so we actually canceled the DC appearance of the Lawfare Drone Smackdown. We moved it out. It became the, the Battle of Third Manassas because we had to move it outside of the DC flight restricted zone. And the result of this was that I, um, got interested in this question. We all have these, you know, some more than others, but we all have these robots now. And they're raising all kinds of uh, amazing 
uh, issues, difficult issues affecting lots of different areas of life. So um, around the same time, I started talking to John and Wells about sort of organizing a paper series that took a look at you know, a broad range of issues in which robotics are kind of making their way into the civilian sector and raising sometimes difficult questions, sometimes just sort of head-scratching questions, some of them very immediate um, that are really upon us right now, and some of them uh, very far off. Find out more about the Lawfare Drone Smackdown on lawfareblog.com and learn more about the Civilian Robotics Series on brookings.edu. And now, what's happening in Congress? Our regular segment with John Hudak, a fellow in Governance Studies. This week, we've been hearing these headlines. President Obama has now laid out his plan to go after ISIS. Well, ahead of this big speech, one of the things the president will be talking about is training and arming the Syrian rebels. It's time for Congress to have an up or down vote on authorizing the use of force. The Senate now will take up this plan. It's not a full war authorization. The president just needs the authority to arm the Syrian rebels, the moderate opposition, and to get the money. President Obama is about to comment on last night's airstrikes against ISIS and other militants inside Syria. John offered his views on how both Congress and President Obama dealt with the administration's decision to take military action against ISIS targets in Syria and Iraq. This week, the American government began in consultation with other countries, uh, bombing targets in Iraq and Syria. The decision-making surrounding this issue in the U.S. represents politics at its absolute worst. Congress is more concerned about elections and the politics surrounding elections than upholding their constitutional and legislative duties. Uh, for an institution that is quick to criticize the president at any moment for exercising executive action, they have largely ceded to the president the willingness and the power to engage in such a military conflict and has opted not to take a vote on the authorization for the use of force or any other war-making legislation, instead allowing the president to execute a war as he sees fit and allowing the Congress not to get their hands dirty. This is a bit disingenuous on the part of Congress as I mentioned, a Congress that is constantly bemoaning the expansion of presidential power this week expanded presidential power in an area that is, is a very primary source of strength for Congress, that is, overseeing war. It's unclear whether Congress will come back into session after the midterms and vote on this issue, but what is more likely is that Congress will support the president if the military action goes well, and if the military action fails, they'll very quickly vote to say that they disagreed with the action and to criticize the president. On the other hand, Congress isn't alone in being disingenuous on the issue of, of attacking ISIL. The president this week, in using his authority to, to attack targets in Syria and Iraq, relied on the 2003 authorization for the use of military force. What's ironic, of course, is that part of the reason Barack Obama is president was his opposition to the 2003 AUMF. It was a, an important issue in the 2008 primary campaign. It was an important issue in the 2008 general election campaign. And a president who has been so morally and principally opposed to the Iraq war is now using uh, legislation that he criticized not just as a candidate, but that his administration has criticized since he's become president. 
He's using that authorization as a basis for engaging in actions in Iraq. And this is just another example of why gridlock happens, why Americans don't trust uh, their elected institutions, and why Congress and the president have tragically low approval ratings right now. Get more analysis and commentary about government and politics from the FixGov blog on our website. That's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. Again, if you have any questions for guests of the podcast or about any of the issues raised, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. I'll read them and air answers on upcoming shows. The podcast would not be possible without the crack production skills of Zachary Culzer, the logo design of Jessica Pavone, and the web support from Rebecca Beiser and Eric Abalahan. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen on brookings.edu.